Would you believe your child if they told you that their teacher was doing something inappropriate to them? What if it was a teacher you really liked and respected, and the accuser wasn't your child, but one of their friends? Or, like in today's case, nearly two dozen of their friends? Hey everybody, welcome to The Unlovely Truth. I'm your host, private investigator Lori Morrison, and I'm going to bring you another story from the world of true crime so that we can see where that intersects with our faith. Then I hope you'll join forces with me and answer what I believe is every Christian's calling, and that's to be a different kind of PI, a person of impact. We're going to talk about a practical way to do that after we dive into today's case. This is Season 3, Episode 33. Our book this week is Secret Lessons, The Perfect Teacher and the Young Girls He Abused. We have a wonderful guest, Angie Bauman, speaker, author, Bible study teacher, and survivor of sexual abuse by a teacher. She's got so much important information for everyone who's sending their kiddos back to school right now. But first, let's have a case summary of this week's book. Now, it's important to understand that there may be some triggering issues that we talk about. We keep it as PG as we can, though. And the names of the victims were changed for this book, and so I've used the names that the authors chose. This is such a sensitive topic, and you might be wondering why I even share stories like this. Well, Jesus used stories as one of his main teaching methods because he knows that we're wired to absorb and retain information given to us in story form. So I want us today to absorb and retain the lesson that these stories are going to teach us so that fewer people become the victims of vicious predators. But don't worry, like I said, I keep the details as PG as possible and focus on learning how to protect ourselves and the people we love rather than some of the more difficult to digest details. Remember 1982? It's so hard for me to believe that that was 40 years ago. I won't tell you how old I am, but I am old enough to know that that was the year Michael Jackson released his album Thriller. That was before we knew about some of the darker sides of his personality. It was also the year of the Tylenol killings in the Chicago area, and that's a case that we're going to be talking about in the podcast in just a few weeks. Not as many people know that 1982 was also the year that events around Caseyville, Illinois, would pit a teacher and a community against a group of very young and very scared sexual abuse victims. An 11-year-old girl had told her stepfather, who just happened to be a police officer, that she found two of her school friends crying in the bathroom. They told her that a male teacher had acted very, very inappropriately with them. She promised she wouldn't tell anyone, but she was so upset that she just couldn't help sharing it with her stepdad. Then other girls came forward with similar stories. So the police called in Pam Klein, a specialist with the local Rape and Sexual Abuse Care Center. They asked her to come and talk to the girls and their families. Of course, she agreed, but she was shocked when she came to the meeting to find nine girls and their families there, and none of those girls was over the age of 13. The girls, of course, were terrified and so very unsure of what exactly was happening. So she asked their parents to let her speak to just the girls and she sat down on the floor with them to ease the tension. The girls all poured out their stories then about being touched, kissed, and even fondled by a sixth-grade teacher named Mr. Van Hook. As awful as their stories were, Klein and the police investigators felt that there were probably even more victims 
with even worse tales to tell out there. So they asked the girls if Mr. Van Hook had a teacher's pet. Everyone agreed that he did, and her name was Catherine Howes. After telling the girls to leave all the things that were scaring them with her and she would take care of them, Pam Klein set out with Detective Dennis Kuba to talk to Catherine. Her parents were very surprised to have the police at their door and even more surprised at the allegations that had been made against Mr. Van Hook. They liked the teacher. It seemed like the whole town did. But 12-year-old Catherine had a very different opinion. But how does a child tell complete strangers things that she hasn't even felt comfortable telling her own parents? Between bursts of sobbing, Catherine slowly admitted that Van Hook had touched and kissed her too. And horrifyingly, she said he had done much, much more. Catherine was lucky to have supportive parents. Pam Klein had once worked with a sexually abused girl whose mother had slapped her, screaming, how could you do this to me? All of the girls who had been victimized by Van Hook would feel like they'd been slapped when they saw how the community rallied round their abuser. The school superintendent wasn't very cooperative in removing him from the classroom. He wanted to know if the girls had taken lie detector tests. Yeah, that's right. He asked if the victims had been given lie detector tests. But the girls' stories each corroborated details of the others, even though some of them had never even met. Some of the girls were still scared of the power they thought Van Hook had. He had told several of them that if anyone found out what he'd done, their fathers would lose their jobs. And school officials were throwing their support behind Van Hook. Another male teacher confronted three of the girls in the cafeteria and told them that some girls should be painted red so that dogs could pee on them. Actually, he said it worse than that, but I tried to make it PG. This is an alleged adult saying this to girls who had been sexually abused. Everyone says that they just can't stand pedophiles until one turns out to be someone they know. On a little bit lighter note for a minute, I'm really excited to tell you that I've got a book coming out, and it is going to be full of safety tips so we can help keep girls like the girls in this story safer, we can keep ourselves safer, our families, and ultimately our communities. And of course, it is going to be chock full of biblical advice telling us not to live in fear and practical ways that we can work that out. So keep your eyes open. November 1st is the target release date, so I'm really excited to share that with you when that's available. Now let's get back to today's story. The local newspaper printed a supportive article about Van Hook, and kids started teasing Catherine about, quote, going all the way, as if she were a willing adult participant and not a child victim. Now, I'm guessing that they caught that attitude from their parents. The investigative and grand jury processes were really difficult for the girls. And after what looked to me like a very lackluster effort on the part of the prosecution, the grand jury failed to indict Van Hook of any charges at all. That made me really mad, and I hope it makes you mad too. If a DA is unwilling to really be an advocate for victims, then it's nearly impossible to get justice in that jurisdiction. But in this case, a little quirk of how that issue of jurisdiction gets decided saved the day. Don Weber, a prosecutor in an adjoining county, was able to step in and file charges in his county because that's where the school district's office was actually located. 
D.A. Weber presented the evidence to a different grand jury, and this time, Van Hook was indicted on multiple counts. The girls were so excited that someone had finally believed them that they broke out in cheers. That caused Van Hook's wife and another woman to begin calling them vile names. It's just another example of victims being repeatedly re-victimized. And their ordeal wasn't over. Investigators continued to dig up more evidence for Van Hook's trial, while the community vilified them instead of Van Hook. More victims were found, and they gave even more details that backed up the stories of the first victims. The trial was so difficult on these girls. They had to tell their stories yet again and listen to these so-called grown-ups call them liars and worse. But in the end, the jury handed Richard Van Hook convictions on five charges. And then while he was out on bail pending his sentencing hearing, he shot himself to death. He left notes proclaiming his innocence and accusing his victims of conspiring against him. Even as he spared himself a long and well-deserved jail sentence, he heaped abuse on his victims one more time. Our guest today understands what those girls went through because she endured something very similar herself. Angie Bauman is a pastor, Bible study teacher, author, podcaster, and she's also a trauma and abuse survivor who has found healing and freedom by knowing God through his word. Angie, I want to thank you so much for joining us because this is obviously a difficult topic to talk about, but I think it's an important one that people understand how they can protect themselves, their children, their neighbors, their community. When predators are picking their victims, they take time to figure out who would be, I hate to say, easier victim to to be able to get what they want from having lived through something very similar to what this book was about. Tell us your experience about what grooming was like. Well, Lori, thank you first for just the opportunity to have a conversation about this. I do think it's just very important. I will say what I think that a groomer is looking for is vulnerability. And it vulnerability takes, it's a very good thing in our relationships to be able to be vulnerable and to be able to share openly. And we talk a lot about that in our culture right now, about being able to be true and authentic and that kind of vulnerability. But the kind of vulnerability I'm talking about is this like gap in a need that's not being met inside of another person. And a groomer is able to uh, watch that situation. You know, he, he, I'm going to say he, because in my case, it was a he and I'm a she. So I'm going to, it's not, doesn't always go that way, but that's my my experience. And I'm going to say, so he, he he looks over this classroom of girls and he decides the ones that he might, you know, most want to pursue a relationship with. And then he watches, he watches to see where they are vulnerable, what need that they may have emotionally that isn't getting met. And then he decides how he can meet that need and be that gap filler for that person to create a dependency. I think it's so important that you really showed how methodical this is, because I think a lot of people think with sexual abuse, it is a spontaneous spur of the moment, an opportunity presents itself. But these predators are looking to establish 
a relationship with their victims to gain their trust. And they want the abuse to be long-term in most cases. Yeah. Ultimately, someone who whose method is grooming and seduction it is it's not about force it's about it's about convincing the victim that she wants this relationship and that and they can be very patient it, it can take a long time for for that to happen but yeah they are but they are patient and it is very methodical and i think it's important to distinguish that there are different types of force. Usually we think of it only being physical force, holding you down, taking advantage of someone against their will. But especially with a teacher-student relationship, there's the whole force of authority. You know, we teach our kids, do what your teachers tell you. It's an abuse of power and it's an abuse of authority. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. And like you said, there's also that meeting of a certain type of need because kids, even though our culture is pretty sexualized and kids know way more now than I certainly did as a kid when I was young, they still don't understand the real dynamics of relationships and what is okay and what is not okay. And so there's that coercion that I would say is is pretty forceful as well. Yes. And there's this power, I think probably most of your listeners maybe could remember what it felt like to be loved powerfully for the first time, right? And so there's also this, one of the things that becomes so confusing is because people, and dang it, this is true, people are not all good or all bad, right? Like I wish yes. it was just more simple. And so there are there are memories that you have and moments that you have that seem quite pure, for lack of a better word, they seem okay. They seem affirming. They seem important. And it's very hard to untangle all of that, especially during the during, but also during the after. Oh, sure. I, in my own experience, I had a sixth grade teacher. He did not abuse me, but one of my classmates and we all looked up to him so much. You couldn't wait to be old enough to be in his class But then once you were there, you realized, oh, this guy is not what I really was expecting. He was very good at putting on the persona that a kid would look up to or little girls might have a crush on. I think that's one of the things that makes it so confusing because often charisma is a part of a groomer personality, if you will. You know, the man who groomed me into a relationship was a very popular band director. The band was something that was, it was just, it was a treasure. It was it was precious to the people in this little community. It was something that sort of put them on the map. We traveled, we we won contests, we marched, we were celebrated. The, there was a huge parent organization that rallied around this man in order to r- raise funds for new uniforms and to send us to Walt Disney World to march on Main Street. And the parents loved him and the kids loved him and the high school had 400 kids and a quarter of them were in band and not everybody was in band because they wanted to play an instrument. They were in band because they loved him, you know? And, and so that's an important thing to know about that too, is that it's not, it's not necessarily the people that are sort of flying under the radar. Sometimes it's the people who are actually 
beloved, which creates all the more, it creates this a different kind of power in that there's this pressure to not tell, because if you tell, you're going to mess up the whole thing for everyone. And so that's a different level of, of pressure. Like you said, with your sixth grade teacher, well, look at how many students he's served well and look how, how great a teacher he is and, and look how the parents look up to him and people want to be in his class. You don't want to take all that down, right, Laura? You know, that kind of thing is, exactly. a, is a big part of it too. And when you did decide to tell and you're talking about someone, like you said, that is just beloved, were you believed? Were you supported? I'm going to take one step back before, no, is the question, no, is the answer to the question. But I just, I want to say openly, I didn't decide to tell. I would, I don't know if I would have ever told. I don't, I don't know what that would have looked like in my life, but someone in the community made an anonymous call to the Department of Children and Family Services, which opened up an investigation. So I was at home one day and there was a knock on at my door and two women, one a police officer and one a DCFS caseworker were there and began to question me and an investigation was open and then there were hearings and you know all of this. At first I lied and said we were only friends and that that wasn't what was happening, which was he was telling me to do. He was telling me what to say so that he didn't get in trouble. If I didn't do it right, he would get in trouble and they wouldn't understand anyway and all of these things, Lori. And and so I I went several weeks into this investigation simply saying, you know, all of this is wrong, you know, and, and then something happened and I'll be glad to share that story if you want, but something happened and I realized who he really was. And then I took copies of letters to the caseworker at DCFS and they copied all of that. And then the investigation took a huge turn. No, I wasn't believed at all. It was, a, it was the most painful and the darkest season of my life. I was 16 turning 17. Those weeks and months that the investigation went on and then the next couple years, even Lori, were very, very dark. Because he was beloved, there was there was kind of like a campaign. I said on a different interview not long ago, if you can imagine sort of like a, a B movie on the Hallmark Channel about this little community and this girl and this, think of that. And that is what this was. There was a, a, a group of parents who came together and would attend the board meetings that happened, the open board meetings. They would read letters of support. I, I have a memory of one night where people were reading letters of support and they were clapping and they were stomping in the cafeteria, you know, and they were calling me names. They called me a homewrecker. They called me a whore. And it was it was open. You know, all of this was open. P kids were leaving notes in my locker and it was it was horrible. And I don't know what the laws were then about mandated reporting. I, I can't speak to all of that. I know like in the state of Illinois where I am now, teachers are mandated reporters, but he had been doing this for a long time and he would come and get me out of class. We would stay after school. Um, he didn't even really try all that hard to hide it, Lori. And so the idea that there was maybe so much at stake. I, I still, I don't want to make up stories about what the community thought or what they were feeling. And I don't think that everyone in the community is bad, but I think for whatever reason, it was just too scary or there was too much to lose to stand with me and to believe me. There were a few people that were really vocal about the fact that I was a liar. And then there was just a whole, whole lot of people who stayed silent. Well, thank you for correcting me, not understanding how it all came out. You mentioned that there was a certain thing that happened where you could finally see him for what he was. 
What was that? Yeah, so I I don't even know how all of this was sort of orchestrated, but there was an older girl, and at the time I thought she was ancient and she was probably 25, (laughs) but there was an older girl who had had a relationship with him some years earlier that through the investigation, the Department of Children and Family Services found. And she was willing to share some of the things that he had written to her that she had kept. And she shared them with this woman, this caseworker, who then brought them to me. And what happened was there was a page out of her yearbook in his handwriting with a poem that he had written to her, which was an original poem that he had written to me. Do you know? And it was the same words and it was the same lines. And as I read that, and I know that God, as much as man orchestrates whatever man orchestrates, God orchestrates it much more divinely and perfectly. And in that moment, it was almost like you could hear the click, 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 clicks of the dominoes in my heart, if you will, where I just began to, I saw that and I knew that I had a copy of that poem that he had written for me, you know, and I saw that in her book and everything just began to click together. And as painful as it was, I suddenly understood that everything I believed about him and about what had happened and about our relationship, it was all coming down. It was all falling apart. After that, I called him one more time. And I remember calling him and saying, I have to testify again. They were going to interview me again. I knew that was coming. I can't remember the specifics around that, but that was coming. And I said, they're going to ask me more questions. And he was like, you need to tell them that we're just friends. And then something in his voice changed. And he said, and you know, the truth is all we've ever been is friends. And as I thought about that and the dominoes and that, you know, all of that was happening at the same time. And I can still remember hanging up the phone and still hearing his voice. I'm, I'm, I'm doing this for your listeners. I'm like hanging it up. This is before cell phones. Just, <laughs> this is when I had a landline, right. right? Like, And I was putting the phone back on the cradle and I could hear his voice the whole time I was hanging it up. Tell him we're just friends. You just tell him we're just friends. And I hung it up while he was still talking. And then I went and I got my folder, which was very thick, filled with notes and mementos and things that he'd given me for over the past nine months, because we'd been together quite a while at that point. And I took them. It was late. She was the only one there, the the caseworker at the uh, DCFS office. And she began to photocopy things. And that's, that's when it took a turn. And how did this all affect your faith when you were in the middle of not being believed, when you were in the middle of being called names, that had to have been so hard. I, you know, I was called into pastoral ministry. I've served a local church for almost 20 years now, Lori. And I was called into pastoral ministry when I was eight years old. I accepted Jesus as my Savior when I was five years old. I grew up a preacher's kid. And I, I knew the Lord and I was the most comfortable in a church sanctuary. And that's still true in my life and in my faith. I have always loved Jesus and I have always been aware of his presence in my life. But I will tell you like what it what it did for me is and I believe this. So if there's a listener that can relate to this, I just want you to know for me and maybe for you, the abuse was hard and that relationship and it, and the end of it and the way it ended was hard. But the community's lack of support and the people in my life their lack of support has been much much harder from which to heal. And so, and I think that's probably true for a lot of us because the response is is additional trauma. It's different, it's differently traumatic. But the thing that it did for my faith in answering your question is that I 
felt, and this is the enemy working overtime because he knows the power of a story like this, but I felt that what I had done and what I had participated in negated my righteousness in him, if you will. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but it negated my ability to be clothed with that royal garment, to be washed white as snow. Those things that that the Bible promises us and are true, somehow I believed my scarlet was too scarlet for that kind of cleansing. And so it put me on a path of not, not trying to reconcile whether or not God was good, but to reconcile whether or not I was good. And of course, we're not because we're human and we're sinners, but but because of Him, we are. Like because of Him, we are righteous and we are made clean. And, but I just, I felt like, and I felt like the community and my family affirmed that that I was just, that was too much now. That was too much. And, and so that was, that that has been the hardest part of this in terms of my faith relationship. I certainly hope that at this stage, you know that you were a victim, that it was such an unequal, I don't even want to call it a relationship because he took advantage of you. He was an adult. You were not. He was in a position of authority over you. So yes, anyone that's listening that has had any type of inappropriate relationship with an authority figure, especially if you were a child, that is not your fault. You are not to blame. And please, if if you come forward and someone doesn't believe you, go tell someone else. You'll find someone that will believe you. The statistics are very clear that, that accusations are nearly always true. False accusations such a tiny percentage, less than 10%, closer to 2% from everything that I have read. And so if some child comes forward to you with a story that someone is behaving inappropriately toward them, believe them and then help get some investigation going. And and I will say, I'd like to add to that. I don't mind sharing this, but I, you know, I, I have the privilege now. I didn't speak of this for almost 25 years. You know, really, it was a long time because I wasn't believed. People knew because it was very public at the time, but I just didn't talk about it. I just tried to live around it or live over it, you know. But there is a piece of me, Lori, always that because I sit here with you today and you believe my story and you believe me and you're willing to share it with your listeners, I wonder if I'm doing something bad because I've because really the story isn't true and that somehow I've convinced you that it is. I know that's a lie. Like I know it's a lie, but I guess I just say that for the benefit of the one that may be listening and saying, oh, I believe her story, but people wouldn't believe mine or maybe mine isn't true or we question our own reality. And I think because we we put our trust into someone, I was 16 and he was 39 and he was an authority over me and he did tell me things that simply were not true, but I didn't know that. And so I'm 47 years old now, and I still struggle to have confidence in myself that I know my truth and that I know enough about the world to trust in someone else's word. And so it's a struggle. And I think that's part of the ongoing thing. That's why I talk about it now, because it's it's important to share my story. And I believe in the power of sharing the places in our life where God has offered redemption and restoration 
But I think it's also important to talk about it because those of us who have lived some version of this, it's still a part of our everyday. It's still a part of our decisions. It's still a part of our relationships. And I still hope for a deeper healing. But I think there's a piece of me that it'll be, it'll be heavenly that I have a complete confidence in myself. Well, I so appreciate you sharing this story. It's, it's so important for everybody to be able to learn some lessons, learn how to, you know, look out for other people and just know that this does happen. You have taken that hurt, though, and you have ministered to other people. So I want you to tell us, what are you doing now and what are you hoping to accomplish Thank you. So the ministry that I lead is called the Steady On, and it's based on Psalm 40, verse 2, which says, He set my feet on solid ground and steadied me as I walked along, because that is my relationship with the Lord. As you can tell from what I've shared, I flounder. I struggle sometimes. I I know the enemy lies to me. I get smarter all the time, but sometimes it takes me a while to figure out, to be able to sift that lie from the truth. And so Steady On is a place for us to realize the personal manifestation of God's promises in the painful places of our lives. And we do that two ways. We take it in. I created a Bible study method called Step by Step, where we study inductively the Bible and then we live it out. And I do that with podcast interviews of people who, like you're doing here, you know, that share their testimony of how God has shown up and been true and faithful in difficult places in their lives, in their stories. And so that that's the ministry of Steady On. And my hope is just to encourage us to look for the ways that God is keeping His promises, because sometimes it feels like He's not, but when we know how to look for them, we can always find that He is. I love that so much. And where can we find you and your resources? My website is live, L-I-V-E, livesteadyon.com. Or I have like the most recent podcast episodes and that kind of stuff is at my Linktree bio link. And it's linktr.ee backslash livesteadyon. And we will have links to all these things in the show notes because I really want people to check out everything you're doing. I so appreciate you sharing again. It has been great talking to you. Lori, thank you for having me. This week, I want us to take a look at Psalm 40, verse 2, and I'm reading from the International Children's Bible. That translation just seemed very appropriate to this story. He lifted me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the sticky mud. He stood me on a rock. He made my feet steady. If you've had an authority figure take advantage of their position and the trust that you gave them, I hope that the message of this scripture really encourages you. And you know that no matter what's happened, God's desire is to lift you up out of that situation, out of the fallout. And like the heart of Angie's ministry is founded on, God will help you be steady as you learn how to move on. Our practical action step this week is to tell ourselves that we're not going to be afraid to be seen as the bad guy, when it means standing up for what is right. I know I can't judge the community that chose not to believe these girls, or the one that didn't believe Angie. But all of my experience as an investigator is screaming that someone knew the truth about what was going on. Probably a lot of someone's. Because public opinion favored the perpetrators, very few people were willing to stand with the victims. If you know someone who feels like they're standing alone, even if it means that you will be criticized, let's all have the courage to stand with them. 
If you liked this episode, be sure to check out some earlier ones. I've had so many amazing guests who have given me fantastic information that you're not going to want to miss. You can also help someone else begin their journey as a different kind of PI, a person of impact, when you share this episode and when you subscribe and give me a five-star rating with a nice review. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neocortex and artwork by Shelby Highland. See you all next time. Thank you for listening to this episode that is part of the Spark Media Network that can now be heard on the Edify app.